Please be seated. Thank you for coming. It's good to be up here again. All right. Um, this lecture was originally given at Boston College last March. Um, I wrote it at their, uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine from grad school invited me to give a lecture, and I just couldn't say no. Um, I like to say that he's the only person on the planet who's ever gotten any work out of me because uh, he makes me do these things. So um, then uh, word got back to Santa Fe, so I got invited to give it at Santa Fe in September, so I've decided to do it a third time now. So what you need to know is it was not written for a St. John's audience. Uh, it was a, a bunch of professors and grad students in political philosophy. And seriously, I chose neither the topic, nor the focus, nor the treatment with St. John's in mind, so I fear it'll be somewhat distant for the things the college takes most to heart, and it'll be kind of professorial and dense. Um, I've altered it a bit for Santa Fe and for you, but I couldn't have reworked it so thoroughly as to fix the basic problem, so you may find it somewhat meh. Um, but let this be a lesson. This is what you get when you specialize, you know, and after a couple of years, you'll love doing this. I did add a bit for Santa Fe, uh, which I will repeat here, which I didn't do um, at Boston College, and I'll, um, I'll do that for you too, because talking to this audience of professors, <coughs> there was something I could take for granted uh, with them, that they, that they would take for granted, which I cannot take for granted with you, name of the proposition that there are some authors, not every author, but some author where there's a surface or obvious or official teaching or goal or doctrine of the work, which is on the surface. But, you know, there's the real teaching or the real goal is really quite different. Um, not every author is like that. Um, oh, yeah, I better start. This is another thing. I gotta start worrying about the time. I'm gonna bore you people to tears as it is. So, uh, at least I'll, okay. So, um, like I said, I can't, um, I can't take that for granted with you. I, I do think that's the case with the meditations. I'm gonna try and show that uh, from within the text. But I just thought I'd give you a little bit of external evidence uh, in that you know in, in that same direction, which I didn't have to do at BC, but I did do at uh, Santa Fe. So here's something you need to know. So this lecture is mostly about Descartes, the meditations on first philosophy. Uh, you know, it's very famous. It was published in 1641, 1642, thereabouts, in Paris. And um, at the very beginning of it, in the first edition, there's a dedicatory letter to the Sorbonne. And the Sorbonne was the big faculty of theology in Paris. It's part of the University of Paris. It's very, very old. It's, you know, this is 1600. The thing was already 400 years old. It was founded in the, in the 1200s. And so there's a dedicatory letter in which Descartes politely asks uh, the Sorbonne to officially approve the, um, the conclusions of the work and officially certify the arguments as airtight. And so um, in this letter, he describes what he says, what he calls, quote, the goal at which I shall be aiming in this book, in the meditations. So the official goal is to prove the existence of God and the distinction of the soul, the distinctness of the soul from the body. Descartes says he wants to do this, quote, so precisely and so clearly 
as to produce for the future a general agreement that they amount to demonstrative proofs. Of the proofs in the book, Descartes continues, quote, these proofs are of such a kind that I reckon they leave no room for the possibility that the human mind will ever discover better ones. So his aspiration is that once the Sorbonne officially endorses his work, quote, there will be no one left in the world who will dare to call into doubt either the existence of God or the real distinction between the human soul and the body. So this is the official goal of the meditations. Uh, the Sorbonne, in case you're wondering, it, it, they, they did not take up Descartes' polite and uh, modest uh, request to officially endorse. Uh, I don't know, they just passed it up. So anyway, so that's the official goal. And he says that everyone in the world includes both Muslims and atheists. No one will be left in the world who will dare deny the existence of God. That's the official goal of the meditations. A lot of times in junior seminars, kids wonder whether he could possibly mean this. Okay, now, there exists a letter of uh, Descartes to his publisher that I want to quote from because, you know, it took a long time to bring this thing to press. Here it is, 1840. So uh, there are revisions being done. So in this letter... Descartes is talking about the summaries or the headings for each section of the book. There's six meditations, and there's a heading for each meditation. <laughs> because he says, quote, I see that people take more notice of the headings in books than anything else. So he lists changes for the headings and stuff. And then he continues. These are the things I want people mainly to notice. But I may tell you, between ourselves, that these six meditations also contain all the foundations of my physics but please do not tell people, for that may make it harder for supporters of Aristotle to approve of them. I hope that readers will gradually get used to my principles and recognize their truth before they notice that they destroy the principles of Aristotle. <laughs> this is in print. So tonight I would like you to accept or at least entertain the possibility that there's a more hidden project or goal to the meditations in addition to and perhaps instead of the official project or goal. And this would be, or at least this hidden project would be, or at least include establishing a new physics and destroying Aristotle's. <coughs> and well, in fact, tonight I want to discuss what I consider a yet deeper stratum of the hidden pro uh, project, one that Descartes does not mention even to Mersenne his publisher in that letter. I've never seen this in, in print. Uh, this deeper stratum is indeed connected with both the new physics and with God, as you'll see. Okay? So now starts the, the actual BC lecture as you know, gussied up for Santa Fe. This lecture is about a topic which has much interested me in the last couple of years, partly because of a book on Aristotle by a professor named Christopher Bruhl, who was at BC, yeah, retired some years back, which I would like here gratefully to acknowledge. So I just wanted to do that again. It's a terrific book. Uh, it's called Aristotle as Teacher. Put in the most general terms, I'm discussing the relation between revelation and reason. Uh, more specifically, the lecture is about Descartes' thoughts on the implications for f philosophy of the bare possibility of an omnipotent God. The lecture is in two parts. Part one is on the meditations on first philosophy, posing a problem as Descartes lays it out in that work. 
And then part two speculates on how Descartes tries to surmount that problem, bringing in some others of his writings, mostly on the new physics. I'll be talking about Le Monde. I'll be talking about uh, the discourse on method. So you juniors will remember Le Monde. Seniors, too, if there are A, any here, and B, any of them remember it. But anyway, so um, <laughs> I can summarize pretty straightforwardly while I will t- what I will try to show in part one. In the meditations, Descartes claims to discover absolute bedrock certainty based solely on unaided human reason, the famous I think I am. While doing so, he talks a fair amount about the relation between this certainty and the Christian God. Eventually, he claims this. Far from being a threat to rational certainty, the Christian God is its only sure guarantee. Now, I believe that his real opinion is very different. The mere possible existence of the Christian God is a threat to certainty, and thus to the possibility of any philosophy based on unaided human reason. By following the twists and turns of the argument, I think that I can make a fairly strong case for this interpretation, and part one of my lecture will be almost entirely devoted to this task. Part two is about how Descartes tries to meet this problem. Part two is much more tentative than part one. I am unsure about my conclusions in two ways. I'm unsure whether they really are what Descartes had in mind, and I'm also unsure as to their adequacy for meeting the challenge posed by an omnipotent God. But (coughs) you'll just see me take things as far as I've been able to take them, so I just beg your indulgence for that. So, part one. So in the meditations, Descartes sets out to find certainty specifically by doubting. Doubting everything that could possibly be doubted. Eventually, he arrives at something that couldn't possibly be doubted. Let us closely follow this process. First, then, in Meditation 1, Descartes doubts low-hanging doubtables, as it were. The physical senses, whether I am dreaming, sophomoric doubts, one might say. Oh, I I forgot to mention, I hereby dedicate this lecture to my two sophomore classes. (laughs) So, I love you. Um... To the sophomoric reasons for doubting, he adds an additional one. He has, quote, a long-standing opinion that there is an omnipotent God who created me. The Christian God, then, could have made him wrong in his belief about such matters as whether he really has a body. Now, this, seem, this might seem like too much artillery to bear on this. And sure enough, immediately after he brings in God into the picture, he brings up a much more serious class of doubtable things mathematical truths. These are things which only the most intransigent sophomores would claim to doubt. Here's a quote. Since I sometimes believe that others go astray in cases where they think they have the most perfect knowledge, may I not similarly go wrong every time I add two or three or count the sides of a square or in some even simpler matter if that is imaginable? But perhaps God would not have allowed me to be deceived in this way since he is said to be supremely good. But if it were inconsistent with his goodness to have created me such, as that I, such that I am deceived all the time, it would seem equally foreign to his goodness to allow me to be deceived, even occasionally. Yet this, assert, this last assertion cannot be made. Okay, so here the reason for doubting that, say, 2 plus 3 equals 5, is an extrapolation from other people's sad experience And God comes in, in the first place, as a source of reassurance. In this regard, 
God falls short of adequacy, but he is not fingered as part of the problem, at least not explicitly. But is watching others make stupid mistakes actually an adequate reason to even pretend to doubt that I can successfully count to four when faced with a square? It is hard to take the suggestion seriously. And indeed, <coughs> immediately afterwards, Descartes indicates that it is the very great power of God that is the real reason for doubting that two plus three equals five. And he says this, quote, Perhaps there may be some who would prefer to deny the existence of so powerful a God rather than believe that everything else is uncertain. Now, Descartes himself does not react to this troubling possibility, the possibility that God is deceiving him about 2 plus 3 equals 5 by denying God. Instead, he supposes the page later that not God, but, quote, a malignant demon, a malignant demon of the utmost power and cunning is trying to deceive him. But now, is this demon omnipotent? If you look at the Latin... Descartes does not use exactly the same phrase to describe the demon's power that he had used to describe God's power. On the other hand, if you look at the Latin, it is a pretty strong phrase. (coughs) And when Descartes supposes that it is not God who is trying to deceive him, the reason he gives is not that he wants to deny that the demon is omnipotent, but rather that God is, quote, supremely good and the source of truth. Well, then, is this demon an omnipotent being even though he is not supremely good? But telling against this possibility is the following. Descartes immediately lists things that become doubtful under the supposition of being deceived by this demon, and there are no mathematicals on that list. One might think that the omission was inadvertent, and I think that Descartes wanted many of his readers to think just that, or to think that their inclusion went without saying. But we must ask, Is the demon, after all, not powerful enough to deceive me about mathematical opinions? Do these opinions stand? One would think that this could not possibly go without saying, without being cleared up, but the issue does not get cleared up in Meditation 1. All right, before moving on to Meditation 2, let's return to the other reaction to this troubling possibility. Let's consider denying the existence of such a powerful God rather than thinking that nothing was quite certain. Descartes himself does not do so here, but as he says, perhaps someone else would indeed prefer to do so. Well, fine and well, but wishing does not make it so. Just because you deny the existence of such a God does not mean that he doesn't really exist. This problem is left behind here. That is, we glimpse here a stance of denying a certain kind of threat to philosophy, a stance which perhaps only amounts to wishful thinking, even as it might understand itself as a refusal to truckle to authority. Descartes is indicating here, you know, suitably low-key, an awareness of the necessity for an eventual settling of accounts with this stance. Onward. Early in Meditation 2, Descartes discovers the famous I am. Just before this, he summarizes the results so far of the doubting And he gives us two last lists of doubtables. They are the two final lists before the I am. Okay, so you'll have to trust me on this. The mathematicals are not on that list. Two rather lengthy lists, and he doesn't mention 2 plus 3 equals 5 or anything like that. So we have reached the very point of discovering the I am without re-raising the issue of the mathematicals and whether they can be doubted. 
So now comes the discovery of utter bedrock certainty, not capable of being threatened by any conceivable doubt. It is not possible to doubt that I am, says Descartes. Now, to show that this assertion is proof against the the strongest conceivable reason for doubting, one would think that Descartes must confront that reason. And he does, or perhaps he does, because here the vagueness left over from Meditation 1 is not, in fact, dispelled. Here's what happens. In considering whether he could be wrong about the I am, he cites a deceiver, a deceptor in the Latin, of supreme power and cunning. It is this deceiver who, quote, will never bring it about that I am nothing so long as I think that I am something. Okay, so is this deceiver God? After all, he's not called a malignant demon here, a ganium malignum, only a deceptor. Or if he's not God, is he powerful enough that I could be wrong about specifically the mathematicals or not? Could he be just powerful enough that I could be wrong about 2 plus 3 equals 5, but not powerful enough to make me wrong about the I am? What would that even mean? <clears throat> and if he is that powerful, <clears throat> he could make me wrong about 2 plus 3 equals 5, but not about I am. Why are not the mathematicals included in those final lists? <clears throat> but if he is not that powerful, if he cannot make me wrong about the mathematicals, then he is, of course, significantly less powerful than the God whose existence is fretted about in Meditation 1. All right, so let's keep moving on. Descartes now turns to the question of what he is, having established that he is. In introducing this topic, he brings in the demon-slash-deceiver again, and the same uncertainties pop up (coughs) when we look closely. Quote, But what shall I now say that I am? when I am supposing that there's some extremely powerful and, if it is permissible to say so, malicious deceiver at work. Now, why this apology? What is impermissible about attributing malice to an extremely powerful being who is not God? Is he gradually lifting some veils of pious decorum? Did he not mean his earlier denial that this might be God? He moves on. So again, he asks himself, what is he? First, he dismisses all the sophomoric items, pardon the expression. He could not be a body, for example. Once again, mathematical truths are not mentioned. (coughs) After some more of this casting about, he says, thinking, at last I have discovered it, thought. This alone is inseparable from me. He is, quote, a thinking thing. So this claim is put forward as being just as unassailable as the I am. Then immediately afterwards, you get another supposedly unassailable claim, the unity of the I, which is thinking. So listen to what he says about this. Is it not one and the same I, who is now doubting almost everything, who never, nevertheless understands some things, and so on, a rather long list, this, that, are not all these things just as true as the fact that I exist, even if he who created me is doing all he can to deceive me. Suddenly a very loaded term has reappeared, a term that he has up till now only applied to God, the very beginning. Isn't he who created me necessarily God? Doesn't creation imply omnipotence? Could a demon create without being omnipotent? I think most readers conclude that this last phrase must be referring to God. So that Descartes is claiming that the certainty that I exist and am one thinking thing is unassailable even by the Christian God. 
As he says of these claims about himself, this cannot be false. Full stop. Most readers have forgotten Descartes' denial that this was God, or think that he has forgotten, or think that he has retracted it. Many readers also have the, the impression that it doesn't make that much difference whether this is God or not. All of this is intentional on Descartes' part. <coughs> but in the meantime, it must again be noted that he has not called into question the mathematicals. Not once since the first mention of God have mathematical truths appeared on any list of doubtable things. They seem proof against any threat short of God himself, perhaps including God himself, but doesn't that contradict the clear statement to the contrary in Meditation 1? And this is as far as matters get in Meditation 2. Now, those of you who know the meditations know that all this, again, is clarified, but only somewhat early in Meditation 3. <coughs> I shall try and look at this passage very carefully. And quote number one is coming up, if you have the hand up. Which... God, explicitly named, comes in while Descartes is discussing what is generally called the clear and distinct rule, that anything which I perceive clearly and distinctly, I can be assured is true. Now, this rule is important later on. I'll talk about it a bit, but <coughs> right now I, I want to discuss only its relation to God. Here's how Descartes describes that relation. This is quote number one. But what... What about when I was considering, back in Meditation 1, what about when I was considering that 2 and 3 added together make 5 and so on? Did I not see at least these things clearly enough to admit their truth? Indeed, the only reason for my later doubt was that perhaps some God could have given me a nature such that I was deceived even in matters which seemed most evident. And whenever my preconceived belief in the supreme power of God comes to mind, I cannot but admit that it would be easy for him, if he so desired, to bring it about that I go wrong, even in those matters which I think I see utterly clearly with my mind's eye. All right, here suddenly it is unambiguously declared that it would be easy for God, for a God in whose power Descartes has long believed, to make it false that 2 plus 3 equals 5, in spite of my clear and distinct perception of its truth. Furthermore, worse ensues, since the passage continues as follows. And this is quote number two. Yet, when I turn to the things themselves, which I think I perceive very clearly, I am so convinced by them that I spontaneously declare, let whoever can do so deceive me. He will never bring it about that I am nothing, so long as I continue to think that I am something, or make it true at some future time that I have never existed, since it is now true that I exist. Or bring it about that two or three added together are more or less than five, or anything of this kind in which I see a manifest contradiction. So Descartes says here that God or no God, he cannot help but believe such things. This is actually a dispiriting reflection. Any assertion which is such that I cannot help but believe it is, as such, something that I will believe even if it is false. The fault might be in me. Descartes studiously ignores this reflection. As a consequence, however, it is now not quite certain that even I, even the I am, is proof against the threat posed by the Christian God as it is at least possible to conceive of him. All right, so it's important that we hold on to this possibility. 
we must see whether and to what extent it is ever refuted, and if it's not, then how we should respond to it, if there is indeed any reasonable response to this. All right, in the immediate sequel, Descartes sounds as if he's trying to minimize the problem. This is quote number three. <coughs> and since I have no cause to think that there is a deceiving God, note he calls his being God again, not a demon, and I do not yet even know for sure whether there is a God at all, any reason for doubt which depends simply on this supposition is a very slight and, so to speak, metaphysical one. But in order to remove even this slight reason for doubt, as soon as the opportunity arises, I must examine whether there is a God, and if there is, whether he can be a deceiver. For if I do not know this, it seems that I can never be quite certain about anything else. Okay, so let's try and be really clear. <coughs> Here, Descartes is in effect declaring that in all the arguments that immediately follow, he's going to ignore the possibility that he could be wrong about the I am, about the mathematicals, and about the clear and distinct rules. rule. He's going to assume from here until further notice that if the Christian God or any God exists, he is not causing Descartes to be wrong about these. He also claims that this is a slight and, so to speak, metaphysical problem. But we must recall that the full title of his work is Meditations on First Philosophy, and the term first philosophy means metaphysics. In such a work as this, to call a problem both metaphysical and slight is to contradict oneself. This is the problem which the Meditations is designed to explore, or at least to expose. Now, it's not easy to maintain this clarity because a red herring pops up. In a kind of faculty analysis of the clear and distinct rule, Descartes introduces a new term, the light of nature. This, too, gets promoted to the status of a guarantee of certainty, and this is what he says about it. Whatever is revealed to me by the natural light, for example, from the, from that, for example that from the fact that I am doubting, it follows that I exist, and so on, cannot be in any way open to doubt. This is because... There cannot be another faculty both as trustworthy as the natural light and also capable of showing me that such things are not true. Okay, I want to say only two things about this. First, note the lack of any mention about God here. If we bring God into the mix, the picture changes significantly. True, there is no faculty capable of showing or especially proving that such things are not true. But we have seen a consideration showing that they might not be true given the possibility of a powerful enough God. Next, note that Descartes is actually assuming perfect trustworthiness in the natural light. For even if we have no more trustworthy or more compelling faculty to correct our opinions, they might still be wrong. We'd just never be able to see that, or more cautiously put, to be convinced of it. So on both counts, we have not advanced at all. Now, all of this is just as Descartes told us it would be once God is tabled. But once again, the reader might actually think that the slight metaphysical doubt has been dealt with once and for all. All of this happens before he starts the proofs of the existence of God in Meditation 3. In the course of these proofs, the problem of the omnipotent God simply gets ignored. We don't want to get into the details. But if you read the proofs, 
and you juniors will remember, you will see that Descartes appeals both to the natural light and to the clear and distinct rule any number of times. It must be a dozen times, if not more, without further comment on the grounds of their trustworthiness. All right, so these proofs and the related discussions are long, including all of Meditations 4, and it is a while before Descartes returns to the problem of certainty. When he does, it is in a way that reminds us that he is assuming that it is no longer a problem. So at the beginning of Meditation 5, he remarks, quote, I have already amply demonstrated that everything of which I am clearly aware is true. Even if I had not demonstrated this, the nature of my mind is such that I cannot but assent to these things, at least so long as I clearly perceive them. Once again, this notion of an irresistibly compelling thought appears, and it is a dispiriting thought again, and it's shrouded in a claim that seems to rob it of its bite, namely the false claim that Descartes has proven that it can't be wrong. And it is here, finally, that Descartes, you know, for the first time in a long time, mentions the mathematicals. Even before, when I was completely preoccupied with the objects of the senses, I always held that the most certain truths of all were the kind which I recognized clearly in connection with shapes or numbers or other items relating to arithmetic or geometry or, in general, to pure and abstract mathematics. They were never called into question. We cannot honestly call them into question. As he says a couple pages later, you know, Pascal has this wonderful thing, you know, how does this go? You can't believe everything. You can't believe nothing. You cannot even doubt. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a mess. Then he says a couple of pages later, but whatever method or proof I use, I, all, I am always brought to the fact that it is only what I clearly and distinctly perceive that completely convinces me. So with this last formulation, whatever method or proof I use, I am always brought back to the fact that it is only what I clearly and distinctly perceive that convinces me. Descartes may have some readers thinking that God is, after all, irrelevant to the epistemological situation. Descartes would be like any other philosopher who starts from certain propositions asserted without proof, and they are just the firmest ones he seems to be able to find, and works from there to arrive at conclusions about the world, God, no God, whatever. Now, in a way, this is exactly what he has done as far as it goes. However, Descartes does not want either his most naive slash pious reader or his most discerning reader to leave with this impression because it is not a full statement of the situation. So, once more, he brings God into the discussion and, one last time, calls into question the reliability of the clear and distinct rule. Let's examine this. Right after my last little quote, he says, quote, But as regards God, what is more self-evident than the fact that God, to whose essence alone existence belongs, exists? This certainly seems like basing your conviction that God exists on a prior conviction about self-evident truths. Just here, however, Descartes adds one last turn of the screw. And what is more, I see that the certainty of all other things depends on the certainty that God exists, so that without it, nothing can be perfectly known. Here's how he backs up this assertion. This is quote number four. <clears throat> Admittedly, my nature is such that, so long as I perceive something very clearly and distinctly, I cannot but believe it to be true. But my nature is also such that, 
As soon as I turn my mind's eye away from something clear and distinct, then in spite of still remembering that I perceived it very clearly, I can easily fall into doubt about its truth. For I can convince myself that I have a natural disposition to go wrong from time to time in matters which I think I perceive as evidently as can be. Now, however, I have perceived that God exists and that he is no deceiver. And I have drawn the conclusion that everything that I clearly and distinctly perceive is necessarily true. Accordingly, even if I am no longer attending to the arguments which led me to judge that this is true, as long as I remember that I clearly and distinctly perceived it, there are no counter-arguments which can be adduced to make me doubt it, but on the contrary, I have true and certain knowledge of it. All right, well, I think the obvious objection to this is insurmountable, and it is this. The very conclusion that God exists is itself merely an instance of something that was once clearly perceived but may not be now. And the same thing with the conclusion that he's not a deceiver. And thus that I can convince myself that I have a natural disposition to go wrong here too. <laughs> Pascal has another great pensée. The proofs of God, the proofs of the existence of God are also difficult that an hour later we're afraid that we've made a mistake. But meanwhile... The naive-slash-pious reader is reassured and even edified by this, while the more perspicacious reader has a very different reaction. Now let's put this passage in the, whole, in the context of the whole meditations. Here, in Meditation 5, Descartes is pretending to return to the radical challenge that God presented to philosophizing in Meditation 3, and he is pretending to surmount it. What seemed like a threat to certainty is here the one true guarantor of it. Nothing could, in fact, be farther from the truth. Between meditation three and here, he has proven the existence of God by tabling the possibility of the God whose existence is feared in meditation three. He said there, right, in order to remove this slight reason for doubt, I must examine whether there is a God, and if there is, whether he can be a deceiver. For if I do not know this, it seems that I can never be quite certain about anything else. In order to do this, he would have had to call seriously into question the reliability of the clear and distinct rule. What he does instead here is to call into question the reliability of memories of the clear and distinct rule. The challenge posed by an omnipotent God has not in the slightest been surmounted. All right, so let's take stock for a bit here. Where are we at the end of Meditations 5? What is presented in Meditations 3 through 5 without Descartes admitting it, I think, is what I would call a fairly straightforward kind of rationalized Christian theology. In it, one assumes that God supports human reason. One then works from certain principles that one considers to be the firmest at one's disposal, although unprovable. And based on these, one elaborates a sketch of this God and our relation to him in such a way as to make us feel better about the original assumption about human reason. We reason to a kind of answer for why human reason is valid within a certain sphere, even if it is not capable of grasping everything. Yes, there are things beyond human reason. However, by assuming that precisely the most important among them, namely God, supports human reason, we can argue for reasons as to how and why he does so. By pushing the matter of certainty so hard, the meditations indicates that this, this procedure is not philosophy, but a kind of religious faith. Intransigent philosophy, 
to apply to Descartes' position, a word Leo Strauss liked, must insist on calling into question any too comfortable assumptions concerning the relation between God, or more generally put, between the divine and reason. So let me expand just a bit. I have called Descartes' target here a religious faith. That does not mean it has to be Christian or Jewish or biblical at all. Any attempt to characterize the divine in this way could be called religious, even if acknowledged, even if it had acknowledged no debt to any widely believed revelation. Here we get into very deep waters, but I believe, I believe I've established that the meditations <coughs> for Descartes' part on Descartes' part takes an entirely serious stand on one aspect of this problem, namely the philosophy, purely rational philosophy, cannot go the route of, say, Plato's forms or Aristotle's unmoved mover in order to ground human reason in the face of challenges from revealed religions. These famous doctrines are in the end, or surface doctrines, if you will, <coughs> are in the end merely comfortable assumptions about precisely the divine. They cannot be argued for. One can only ignore the challenges to human rationality posed by the possible alternative powers that the divine might have. Furthermore, they are, in fact, at variance with much of what various widely believed revelations actually, in fact, seem to assert about the divine. And no general reasons can be given for preferring one to another. The widely revealed ones that typically call into question the adequacy of human reason in the face of the divine <coughs> versus these assumptions about the divine. So that's the situation as I read it at the end of Meditation 5. That's the, pred that's the predicament that Descartes thinks philosophy finds itself in. So what does he propose should be done about it? That's the question hanging over Meditation 6, and I might add my own part 2, to which I now proceed. Okay, part two. All right, I should note at the very outset that what Descartes suggests in Meditation 6 is extremely narrow in comparison to what a truly serious response would have to cover. Meditation 6 really is, <coughs> you'll see, it's kind of narrow. Any response to a challenge this global must proceed on the level of Metaphysics, natural philosophy, moral philosophy, political philosophy, a study of the soul, to oversimplify shamelessly. Meditation 6, very narrow, only deals with metaphysics, natural philosophy, and their relation to one another, thus leaving huge areas of inquiry aside. Furthermore, laying out Descartes' expose of the problem facing philosophy is far easier than trying to describe the solution he would favor. From now on, this lecture changes in character. I must perforce be relying on and sort of unloading on you some of my own reflections on some very difficult matters, some of them quite long-standing reflections in justice to myself. And you must watch me credit Descartes with some of my own ideas in my attempts at an interpretation which makes sense to me. So then, here's something I think. <laughs> Let us grant that metaphysics or natural philosophy or whatever you want to call it cannot by itself do, do the job of saving philosophy from the challenge we've been examining. It by itself cannot, to, be, to put it in its most brutal terms, refute the existence of God powerful enough and willing to undermine human reason. 
Oh, let's grant that. Well, it's also true that moral or political philosophy by itself cannot do the job. You absolutely need something on the level of metaphysics or natural philosophy, not so much a self-consistent, knowable, complete account of the whole, but this is unobtainable. Socrates was right about that. But at least some sort of in-principle sketch of how a self-consistent account would be possible. <coughs> Otherwise, you can find inconsistencies in any religion's political and moral and astronomical teachings as much as you want. If those inconsistencies are matched by unavoidable self-contradictions in your philosophical account, you've gotten nowhere. And as I've said before, you can't get out of it by comfortable assumptions about the divine that go in the face of widely re uh, received revelations or are comfortable interpretations of widely received revelations. Does Meditation 6 hint at some such sketch? Well, I think it contains some suggestive things. Suggestive partly because they're very irrelevant to the main line of discussion. Here's what happens. Meditation 6 is proceeding methodically. Of course, that's what you have to do. That's the only way to maintain certainty step by step as you establish more and more things. Okay, so starting solely from what has been established, Descartes discusses the existence of physical corporeal things. First, he concludes that they exist and that they certainly do possess, quote, all the properties which are comprised within the subject matter of pure mathematics, extension, number, and so on. Then he discusses whether they possess properties that are not within the purview of pure mathematics, heat, cold, color, things like that. <coughs> this follows in reasonable enough order, although it might seem of less urgency. But then, unexpectedly, a difficulty occurs to him. Sometimes a person uh, suffering from dropsy, which is a, a terrible disease connected with congestive heart failure, suffering from dropsy has a great desire to drink water when that will only make him sicker. This might seem to impugn the benevolence of God, and Descartes spends a surprising amount of time defending God from this possible accusation, although in its term, it in its term would seem to be pretty irrelevant to the main task of the meditations. While defending God, however, Descartes suddenly departs from his orderly step-by-step -step approach. Instead, he makes claims about the meaning of nature that simply do not follow from anything that has been said before in the entire meditations. These are new, unsupported, unestablished, and quite striking claims. So this is quote number five. A clock observes the laws of nature just as closely when it is badly made and tells the wrong time as when it completely fulfills the wishes of the clockmaker. In the same way, I might consider the body of a man as a kind of machine which, even if there were no mind in it, would still perform all the same movements as it now does in the cases where movement is not under control of the will. If such a body suffers from dropsy, for example, it will take a drink, <coughs> with the result that the disease will be aggravated. Yet this is just as natural as when there is no such illness and the drink is beneficial. I can say that a dropsical body is deviating from its nature, but I am well aware that nature, as I have just used it, has a very different significance from nature in the other sense. <coughs> as I have just used it, deviating from a nature, nature is simply a label which depends on my thought. 
it is quite extraneous to the things to which it is applied. But by nature, in the other sense, I understand something which is really to be understood in the things themselves. In this sense, therefore, the term contains something of the truth. To be natural is always to follow laws. It's clear that the laws are mathematical and that they, and that they follow with some sort of necessity. Now, to anyone familiar with the discourse on method and Le Monde, this is not a new claim. I'll turn to those versions in a minute. What's different here is that Descartes here does not claim to derive this characterization of nature from any of God's perfections, as he does in both of the later writings, the latter writings. In my opinion, the silence here is more frank than the pious verbiage in those works. For I think that Descartes' idea of laws of nature here does not, in fact, follow from anything else. It is a fundamental assumption, one of the cornerstones of his attempt to meet the challenge of an omnipotent God. Okay, here's a sketch of how I think this works. I'm just going to start skipping stuff. <coughs> Again, you must excuse me thinking on my own and supposing that Descartes, hoping that he would agree. These necessary laws are a substitute for an eternal being. For example, Aristotle's unmoved mover, or Thomas's God, or for that matter, Lucretius's Adams. Take, for example, the proof, Thomas's proof in the Summa Theologica for the existence of God based on the distinction between necessary and contingent beings. Thomas argues, you know, roughly, if there were no necessary beings, then given an eternity of time stretching back, there must have been some time somewhere in which there were no beings, in which case there would be no beings now, since nothing comes from nothing. Thus, Thomas. But this is not an airtight argument, for there is an alternative. This is suggested by everything we see, but <coughs> it's certainly conceivable that when an actual being ceases to exist, another actual being takes its place. It devolves into other actual beings, not into mere potentiality, let alone nothing. That is, what is necessary is that actuality be succeeded by actuality, not that some particular actual being exists necessarily and eternally, a law governing becoming. In this way, one might try to substitute some set of permanent laws for permanent beings that in some manner enforce or underlie, <coughs> for, so substitute some, some, some set of permanent laws for permanent beings that in some manner enforce or underlie the stable properties that we see. And these permanent beings would be divinities. Okay, so this uh, version of laws of nature that I've just sketched out, this might seem familiar enough. We've, you know, we've all been exposed to this kind of thing. <coughs> but now I want to raise the question, how far does Descartes want to push the notion? So these laws govern every aspect of absolutely everything. If so, you'd have this you know, radically deterministic universe, it would be similar to Laplace's famous characterization from his philosophical essay on probabilities. Quote, that's what he's, this is what he says. An intellect which at a certain moment would know all forces that set nature in motion and all positions of all items of which nature is composed, if this intellect were also vast enough, would embrace in a single formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the tiniest atom. For such an intellect, nothing would be uncertain, and the future, just like the past, would be present before its eyes. Now, would Descartes want to go this far? 
And if he didn't want to, how could I avoid it? How could he avoid it? I consider these to be important questions, partly because, as a matter of fact, it seems to me that this kind of lockstep universe carries its own danger to philosophy and that Descartes was sensitive to that. So I'll just say a couple of things here. Here's what I'm getting at. With strict, strict determinism, there is always only one kind of causality at work. There's no room for independent kinds or threads of causality. Therefore, there's no room for subsets of the whole, which are held together and governed by these threads of causality that can be examined, analyzed, and grasped in isolation from that underlying whole. On the contrary, the answer to every question about the state of affairs right this moment is, quote, because of, one, the fundamental laws of nature, which form a unique and exhaustive set, plus, two, the initial configuration of the fundamental particles. I'll try and clarify this problem by things that people say about human consciousness sometimes. Human consciousness, it is sometimes claimed, is a mere epiphenomenon. It seems to have its own characteristics and to follow its own laws, all of which can be explored independently, but that is an illusion. Everything that it does is actually a direct result of atoms following the laws of physics and can be adequately understood only in those terms. This is a good example of what Descartes and I fear. So (coughs) I would like to avoid this. What's the alternative? Well, in order for these subsets, as I have called them, for example, human beings, to be intelligible on their own terms, they must be susceptible to a kind of examination which reveals directly from them, from the phenomena which they exhibit, intelligible characteristics and rules of behavior. These must be accessible to our minds independently of the background laws. This means it seems to me that they must really have characteristics of their own that are related only in an indirect way to that lockstep background. With these reflections in mind, let's now examine a couple of Descartes, back to Descartes, (coughs) Descartes' claims in Le Monde and the Discourse on Method. In Le Monde, Descartes lays out a world consisting solely of matter, and you juniors will remember this matter with an extremely restricted set of properties. This matter starts in an unknown and unknowable configuration, is put into motion by God, and subsequently follows quite simple, necessary mathematical laws, which he goes into. Descartes then claims, quite strikingly, that no matter how God initially subdivided this matter, and no matter how he administered his initial kick to set matter in motion, everything would have settled down into a recognizable version of our world. That's a quote number six. Let us assume that pieces of matter, starting from any random initial state, have been made to continue their motions according to the ordinary laws of nature. Then God has so wondrously established these laws that even as we suppose that he creates nothing more than what I have just said, and even if he does not impose any order or proportion on it, but makes of it the most confused and most disordered chaos that the poets could describe, the laws are sufficient to make the parts of that chaos untangle themselves and arrange themselves in such right order that they will have the form of a most perfect world which one will be able to see not only light, 
but also all the other things, both general and particular, that appear in this true world. He subsequently gives, you know, prima facie reasons for why, for example, our universe would contain stars which give light and why each star would be at the center of a system of planets. There he gives no reasons why we would have, why we would have animals, but he does imply, as we've just seen, that we would have animals no matter what the starting state was. Notice how different this is from Laplace's dictum about predictability as a decisive supplement to it. Now, in the, discourse, in the discourse on method, he makes some remarks that, in a way, cut the other way and are a kind of uh, a necessary limit. He makes remarks that imply that there's no necessity for the particular kinds of animals that exist on Earth, or even for animals at all to exist on Earth. It has just turned out this way. This is much more modest than the claim of Lamond. While admitting tendencies, this is a vision of the world which refrains from positing global tendencies, universe-wide tendencies for particular things. For instance, a fundamental tendency towards, say, lions, or more generally towards life or intelligence in the universe. Consequently, it would resist positing any underlying ground beneath the phenomena which would necessitate or explain those particular tendencies. So there must be, one way of putting this, there must be chance or accident at, at work of a certain kind, of a kind that makes independent or new tendencies possible, tendencies cutting across a deterministic background. These tendencies have effects neither derivable nor predictable from that background. This is a notion of tendency in some weak but real sense, the tendency of a kind of system to work in a kind of way through all sorts of disruptions and also given a variety of starting points. And it does not assume, again, any underlying being or knowable cause responsible for coming into being. Okay, so I will say, okay, <clears throat> say another thing. Now, there's another thing I believe. I believe this for a while. I believe that a great deal of science, especially biology, as we actually have it, actually has no truck with strict lockstep determinism. For example, I think that such determinism is quite incompatible with Darwinism. Why are there lions? Darwin does not and cannot and does not want to hearken back to an original configuration of fundamental particles or laws governing atoms. There are lions because on another level of causality, an acquisition of new inheritable abilities improved the chances of survival of some pre-lions that had them. As a statistical effect, I don't, I don't quite know how to label the kind of cause and effect at work here. More of them survived to reproduce, and the new ability spread. This process, repeated a myriad times, led eventually to the existence of modern lions. The general properties of matter have nothing to say whether any individuals of these pre-lions did better. They did better because of their properties and those of their prey, and even then they did not do so necessarily. Whether they succeeded in any given instance was also partly due to chance, and they did better only on average. That's the way tendencies like this manifest themselves. Okay, to dip with great dread, now I'm getting very near the end. To dip with great dread into using Aristotelian terms, what happens always, literally always, and of necessity, 
is actually not of much use to a great deal of philosophy, which must deal with what happens for the most part. What happens for the most part, of course, is what characterizes these subsets that I am talking about. And as some of you may know, and the Professor Brule found something kind of striking, in the metaphysics of all places, Aristotle says, in apparent tension with remarks in the ethics, that episteme, scientific knowledge of what is only for the most part, is possible. So, the task of a natural philosopher in this Cartesian sense would be to identify these other layers and types of causality and perhaps further develop this in-principle sketch, which I've just only just most roughly you know, sketched in as to how they could cut across a determinism. <laughs> now, this further development is necessary, but I think the first part is more important and fruitful. Furthermore, there's a passage in a letter where Descartes himself emphasizes how independent the first task is from the second. Quote, Metaphysical thinking, which brings the pure understanding into play, makes the notion of mind familiar. And the study of mathematics makes us accustomed to form the very distinct notions of body. However, it is by relying only on the activities and ordinary concerns of life and abstaining from philosophical meditation and from studying the things which exercise the, ima the imagination that we can learn to conceive the union of mind and body, i.e. us. Clearly, to conceive the union of mind and body here does not, does not mean to derive it from metaphysics and physics or to derive it from the properties of mind and the properties of body. Indeed, it does not mean to derive it from anything supposedly proper, prior, sorry, supposedly prior. Instead, it means to gain a conception of the union of mind and body by studying directly how that unified being, namely us, acts. It's very surprising to hear Descartes talk this way. Don't do metaphysics. Don't do, you know, if you're going to study human beings, study human beings. Don't try to derive them from the meditations. Okay, in conclusion. We have to ask ourselves, <coughs> all this, you know, he's attempting to do this, he's attempting to do that, I'm trying to make sense of this, I'm trying to make sense of that. How far does all this get? How far does this all get past merely denying the existence of so powerful a God rather than believing that everything else is uncertain? I said above that wishing, wishing does not make it so. So in a way, all Descartes has done is this. He rejects positing beings, divine beings, beyond the visible, mutable contents of the whole. He rejects either accepting a revealed God and believing that he supports reason, or positing some other kind of invisible divine beings and assuming, without being told by them, that they support reason. He counsels positing nothing beyond the visible whole. On the other hand, he does seem to have to posit features of it, which, while possible, can never be known for sure. To what extent do the kinds of these kinds of assumptions go beyond mere wishing towards the, stat, the status of an assumption that can be vindicated in good conscience? To quote the aforementioned Professor Brule in the passage in his book, the task of my lecture has been, quoting him, showing what such a science seeks 
and uncovering, is this the same as vindicating them? The assumptions upon which it actually rests. So that parenthetical question, I must end with a shrug. Not a Gallic shrug of superior indifference, but a Latino shrug of acknowledged inadequacy. Thank you very much.